This episode is sponsored by Unique One Network. Given where things stand, an asset that can be supplied in such large quantities actually seems somewhat paradoxically to have an advantage over one that cannot be supplied at will. People don't trust governments, and governments need to have that trust. And lacking that trust, it's better to have a system where you don't need to trust anybody, and you have confidence that 100 years from now, the way that the rules are set today will effectively be predictive of what the rules are then. And that is, again, sharply different from any type of system that you see out there that is in comparison to something like a cryptocurrency. Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Coindesk's Michael Casey and Sheila Warren of the World Economic Forum as they explore the connections between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. This episode is brought to you by the Coindesk Podcast Network. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Michael Casey. Hello and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Michael Casey. There aren't many events that go down as having changed the course of human history, but this week we get the 50th anniversary of one that truly deserves that recognition. It won't get the same attention in mainstream media as an anniversary of, say, the made-for-TV events of the past century that dominate public consciousness, such as the end of World War I or II, or perhaps the fall of the Berlin Wall. But this one's impact on our lives was profound, and it's especially important to reflect upon it now as the global economy grapples with the challenges of mounting debts and with the emergence of a new digital form of money. I'm talking, of course, about the Nixon shock. The decision taken by President Richard Nixon on August 13, 1971, to remove the dollar from its peg to gold. In one fell swoop, that move tore apart the international monetary system that had been in place since an historic 1944 agreement at the Bretton Woods Hotel in New Hampshire and it ushered in the age of fiat currencies. With the dollar's supply no longer constrained by whatever holdings of gold the US had, every other country naturally moved to de-beg their currency from the dollar. The effect this had on the global economy cannot be overstated. It contributed to the inflation that took hold in the 1970s, and then, as the then Federal Reserve Chairman Paul Volcker successfully fought that scourge by jacking up interest rates, to the rise in importance of central bankers as the overlords of our financial system. And while some might have thought that Nixon's seemingly reckless move would undermine the dollar's supremacy in the global economy, by some measures, the opposite occurred. In a world that was suddenly more volatile and unpredictable, and which now more than ever needed an anchor of stability to build its transactions around, the dollar cemented its role as the world's reserve currency, a system that became known as Bretton Woods II, established an international framework of financial regulation that, as we've discussed often on Money Reimagined, put the US in a powerful position as the world's financial policeman. The Nixon shot also laid the foundation for the financialization of the global economy, with foreign exchange movements creating a whole new area of risk that companies needed to manage. Investment banks were handed an entirely new business line, one that would expand into ever-growing complex strategies for commodities, bonds, and derivatives. It paved the way for the Gordon Gecko Wall Street legends of the 1980s and ultimately to the excessive power and influence that the financial sector holds over our politics and our economy. 
That power would reach its destructive apex with the global financial crisis of 2008-2009, and yet it has continued since then to contribute to an ever-widening wealth gap in the US and in other developed countries between those who own large amounts of financial assets and the great majority of those who largely don't. There are many other geopolitical and economic fault lines that owe their status to the fiat currency model that the Nixon shock created. The uneasy codependence that emerging markets have with US interest rate policy, for example, or the tensions that exist between Beijing and Washington over trade and other areas of contention. Now, however, following the launch of Bitcoin in the midst of the financial crisis 13 years ago, there are the makings of an alternative to that system. Bitcoin supporters present it as the antithesis of fiat money, with a monetary policy that's not beholden to the decisions of a group of government officials, but dictated predictably by an unbreakable decentralized protocol that no single entity controls. To answer the many questions this raises, we are joined by Eshwar Prasad, Professor of Economics at Cornell University and Senior Fellow at the Brookings Institution. He is the author of a bunch of books, two of importance for today's discussion. They are The Dollar Trap and the next one due for publication next month, The Future of Money, How the Digital Revolution is Transforming Currencies and Finance. And we're also joined by our very own Adam B. Levine, Managing Editor of Podcasts at Coindesk. But before we get to them, let's introduce my co-host, as always, Sheila Warren. Hi, Sheila. Hi, Michael. I was thinking about this in the context of the other very big news of the past week, and that was, at least in our crypto world, amazing way in which the sector just became thrown into the public discourse as a result of the debate over the infrastructure bill. There's this sort of moment in time, I feel like, at the moment where cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, is really up there as part of the national discourse, the big conversation. And it's intrinsically linked to some of these big questions about the future of the global economy. So when politicians are debating whether or not to put certain clauses into an infrastructure bill, and cryptocurrencies are at the heart of that. It's, I think, in some ways, directly connected to these big geopolitical questions. Because the subtext, of course, is this discussion about the competition with China, which I think goes to the heart of a lot of these big questions about the shape of the international monetary system. So those are my thoughts. You got any? I sure do. Here's what I think is really interesting, because we've seen in parallel kind of the inability of the crypto ecosystem to deny the relevance of policymaking and policymakers and regulation for the space. And I think that that was certainly a view that was held by more sophisticated actors within the ecosystem who understood that regulation was something that could go one way or the other. It could be something that kind of put the industry, you know, hampered it and really hobbled it, or it could be something that was a, a proponent and kind of helped propel it into, into certain spaces. And that their regulation necessarily isn't a bad thing, but bad regulation is a very bad thing. You know, and so which this was depends on who you were. And we saw factions come together and disband and come together again over the course of the days that this thing was being debated. And it will, of course, continue to be debated as it moves to the House. And those discussions are very much in play and ongoing. The way I see this anyway is what this represents for crypto within the US political system and what it does not represent, right? So in my view, this was a pay for. And what does that mean? It means that. The Senate was really trying to find a way to justify some of the expenses in the infrastructure bill and tie them to pay-fors, which are sources of revenue that would be drawn into the bill to make it more compelling to a broader variety of constituents. So clearly a recognition that, at least in the minds of those who put forth this bill and some of the amendments, there is value here. There's value in the ecosystem that is taxable value that could be put forth by the U.S. government and deployed into various buckets, including infrastructure. 
that's a little different from saying that there's recognition on the part of the U.S. political system that there is a big threat to the financial system, you know, that's on the horizon, right? Now, I think those of us in this space, maybe not using such dramatic terminology as threat, you know, that aside, I think that is very much how we see what's happening here. And so we see it as analogous to some extent to the Nixon shock in terms of the profound changes that it is going to usher in, provided that the enabling environment, which includes regulation, enables that to happen, enables the system to thrive. But I see this as a parallel. And, you know, arguably it represents the first kind of massive such shock to the system because of the nature of what decentralizing some of this would mean. But I'm very curious to hear from Ishwar, you know, in particular about this topic and the kind of history of it as well. And if you see this similarly as being as dramatic of a moment as the Nixon shock was. So there's an interesting parallel here, because if you think about the Nixon shock, there was a sense of inevitability to it. It was a period when there was growing trade and growing trade imbalances among some of the major economies. And it was clear that constraining the supply of fiat currencies was putting the exchange rates of these currencies out of whack, and it was making it very difficult for central banks and governments to manage policies that could suit their domestic economies in the way they wanted to without this constraint of the gold standard and for the other currencies, the peg to the dollar. The parallel, I think, here lies in the fact that we are at an important point for the crypto space where it is interacting with the policy space, and this is where things get messy. But Underneath the messiness, I think there is an interesting element to this intersection between the policy world and the crypto world. Of course, the irony here that if you think about the origin of Bitcoin right after the global financial crisis, the main allure, of course, was that it provided a way to transact without intersecting with a government institution or an old-style financial institution. But I think what we have come to see is that the crypto industry, as I would characterize it, including cryptocurrencies, crypto assets derived from them, have all benefited to some extent from the veneer of legitimacy provided by the government. But at the same time, there is a very difficult balance that policymakers face. On the one hand, you don't want to stifle the innovation and all the benefits that this industry could potentially bring. But there is a sense of fear because this is a fast-growing industry that is pervading into many aspects of traditional finance. There are risks that are potentially building up. There are unknown risks. So regulators who certainly have a tendency towards shying away from risks want to take action. But of course, trying to take regulatory action as part of a broader bill and bring this in as a tangential aspect that casts a very wide net is certainly not the right approach. But I think it's certainly a sign that the industry has matured to a point where policymakers are going to take note. And I think it's going to be up to the crypto industry to some extent to guide the narrative about what exactly can be achieved through these innovations, what the risks are, and how they can be managed. I want to bring it to this geopolitical element as well, though, because as much as both you and Sheila are right to focus on some of the fear and aspects about this combination between legitimizing, but also sort of fear and capturing value from this sector. What was also notable for a lot of us was, you know, somewhat bipartisan movement of senators and other lawmakers, you know, the lower house as well, moving in favor of the technology and that the language that they were using was, we have to do this so that the United States is ahead on innovation. And to me, the subtext was always, it always is versus China. 
And at some point, hopefully this conversation will get to it. But like to me, and this is a big theme we run through in Money Reimagined a lot here is that some of us see that the US has to compete on some of this highly disruptive technology because there could be a more open system that the United States could embrace that China actually just cannot for the nature of the way that it is structured politically. Then dealing with that ultimately is a challenge to the existing infrastructure of the global financial system in which the current dollar-centric model exists. Like the dollar could go on and be very expansive, but at the same time, you would have to give up on some of that power, that surveillance power really that the United States has. And so that's where I wanted to just go with you on that and to see, you know, since you've been looking, you know, The Dollar Trap was this great book about sort of the inevitability of the dollar's persistent dominance despite everything. And I know there's a lot of interesting arguments as to why that has been the case. And now that you're looking heavily at the digital aspect of this, is there a challenge to US dollar hegemony, at least as it is currently structured on just, let's call it Bretton Woods 2, as a result of these new technologies, be they China's central bank digital currency or Bitcoin or even stable coins that are dominated in dollars, does it challenge the system as you see it? There are challenges that every central bank faces, and I think the dollar faces particular challenges at one level, although one might argue that the dollar is most protected from these changes, at least in the short run, given its dominant position. But I think the challenges are coming for the dollar as well. Certainly, we can see decentralized payment systems playing a much more important role, both domestically as well as in terms of cross-border payments, where there are rampant inefficiencies that certainly could be eliminated. But I think as you look across the global landscape, the question is how other central banks are reacting to these changes. And we've already seen a number of central banks around the world, including those of China and Sweden and Japan, trying to get started on their own digital currencies. Now, they're not necessarily doing it because they're concerned about threats from abroad, but they want to keep their central bank monies relevant domestically rather than be taken over by privately managed digital payment systems. This could have some effect, not just domestically, but also on a broader international scale. Now, most international payments are already digital. So just having a digital version of the Chinese currency, the renminbi, won't necessarily transform it into a global powerhouse. But certainly you could see other currencies becoming more widely used, especially in international payments, and especially if these new conduits for international payments provided by decentralized payment systems or even stable coins with more centralized payment architectures beginning to play a more important role. So I think there is a realistic prospect that the dollar's role as a payment currency could erode over time. I think it will still remain dominant by far, but certainly its overall share could erode as other payment systems become more important. But as a reserve currency, you need a lot more. You need investors, both domestic and foreign, to have access to a lot of assets denominated in the currency, assets that have relatively stable value, that are relatively liquid, that can be bought and sold relatively easily, and that ultimately are backed up by an institutional framework of trust. I don't think cryptocurrencies will quite meet that challenge. Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies certainly being acquired as stores of value right now. But I find it hard to believe that these could seriously challenge fiat currencies. And I'll leave you with one paradox that actually goes back to the collapse of the gold standard that we started out with, Michael, 
which is the notion that if you take Bitcoin, for instance, the fact that its value to some extent seems to be pegged with scarcity, as you pointed out, the computer algorithm that manages its issuance, mandates a certain number of Bitcoins being issued at specific intervals, and there being a hard cap on the number of Bitcoins. But what we've learned, especially since the global financial crisis, is that it's not necessarily financial assets that are provided inelastically, that is in limited amounts, but actually those like the dollar that can be provided at will by the central bank that actually seem to hold their value much better. Because we all know that when crunch time comes, these assets can be produced in large quantities, fewer liquidity in the financial system. So this may be a failing of the financial system that we have right now, both domestically and abroad. But given where things stand, an asset that can be supplied in such large quantities actually seems somewhat paradoxically to have an advantage over one that cannot be supplied at will. All right. So this is one I think we can dive into here. Adam, Ishwar started out with this notion of trust. How much trust is there in the system? And so I think he's suggesting clearly because of that capacity to add when needed liquidity, that breeds trust. Obviously, that's not a perspective that lots of Bitcoiners hold. And the question of trust and who do you trust and what do you trust is different. So what would you say to that interpretation? I would say that really what we're talking about is the credibility of the system. The trust in the system and the credibility of the system, I think there's a little bit of a nuance there. I think that when you look at kind of modern financial systems, they have a lot of credibility, but not a lot of trust. When you look at systems that are like Bitcoin, what you are effectively saying is that it is better to trust no one and to just have an open plan that is clear and maintained by a form of consensus effectively, rather than to trust. Because in my opinion, to the degree that trust is important to a system and that system lacks meaningful alternatives is to the degree that that trust will be abused. And the abuse of that trust is what then eventually destroys the credibility within these systems. And my belief for the last number of years has been that that's actually what we're witnessing right now in the markets. That's what we're witnessing right now when we look at the dollar and we look at every other currency around. It's all about competition, right? In a world that lacks a form of competition, you will take the least worst thing that's available to you. And so something like Bitcoin stands in pretty sharp contrast to that in that it is an alternative that plays by a fundamentally different set of rules. And that set of rules does not require trust and does not enable someone to then abuse that trust, which then makes it a system that is very attractive compared to really anything else that you look at out there. I like to say that Bitcoin by itself in a vacuum is actually not an interesting project at all. There's almost nothing to it. It's inefficient compared to many other things. And really, it is only in the world in which we exist today, the world in which that enormous trust that effectively the U.S. government has taken upon itself since the full disconnect from kind of the gold standard. The gold standard as we had it in 1971, when that was actually closed, was not a gold standard. It was a gold exchange standard, and there were lots of problems with it. I won't relitigate those points here right now. The common way to look at this is that Bitcoin needs credibility from governments because otherwise, who would trust it? And the answer is that people don't trust governments and governments need to have that trust. And lacking that trust, it's better to have a system where you don't need to trust anybody and you have confidence that 100 years from now, the way that the rules are set today will effectively be predictive of what the rules are then. And that is, again, sharply different from any type of system that you see out there that is in comparison to something like a cryptocurrency. There's so many blockchains and NFT marketplaces these days, and none of them work together. 
Introducing Unique One Network, the easy way to build multi-blockchain DeFi-enabled NFT marketplaces, where instead of picking your favorite blockchain, you let your users and creators pick for themselves. Powered by Polkadot, Unique One Network lets you service NFT creators and collectors across art, photography, philanthropy, gaming, finance, and more. So do yourself a favor and head over to uniqueone.network now to learn more. That's uniqueone.network to learn more. I actually think it's worthwhile to go into there was a gold exchange standard because I'm willing to bet a lot of our listeners, you know, who are, I imagine many of us, including me, were born after this whole transition after the Nixon shock. Let's go back to that a bit. Maybe, Adam, you can start. And then, Ishra, I'd love to hear from you. Also, the motivations for Nixon to do that, which Michael alluded to a bit, but we can get into that a little bit more because I think that's actually going to be quite interesting of a thread to pull forward to today. You know, I was born in a post-1984 world, so I'm not an expert there either. I do know enough about it. I've read a number of books about it to kind of comment to the basics of it. To my understanding, gold was a constraint on the ability of governments to issue currency at will for purposes that they might have deemed very important. And the effectively closing of the gold window was to free governments of that constraint. And in practice, what we've seen since then is that the value of the dollar in terms of purchasing power has declined by something like 97%. I think that statistic is older than the, you know, several trillion dollars worth of new money that's just gone into the system. So that's the analogy that I draw directly to Bitcoin is that it, in a very real sense, if Bitcoin were a reserve currency or Bitcoin were the backing for a reserve currency, would act in a very similar way to gold, but without many of the downsides, which are notably that it needs to be audited by someone in person, it needs to be defended. And all of these things are effectively obsolete when you're talking about a cryptocurrency that can be transparent, where the backing addresses and the backing of it can be printed on every single bill. And you can you know, really have kind of like your cake and eat it too around that. But Professor, am I correct in thinking that that is the primary mechanism at work here? That it was a limitation on the government's ability to create new money and that the removal of it or the ending of that was the unlocking of that constraint? So there is a long history here of competition between private currencies and government-issued currencies going back to ancient civilizations. These have coexisted. And then there was a period when fiat currency was created, especially fiat paper currency, that basically allowed it to dominate private monies. But the problem with fiat currency, especially paper currencies, it can be printed at will. And this led to many inflationary, some hyperinflationary episodes, especially when it came to financing war expenditures. Plus, you had the problem of countries trying to devalue their currencies in order to gain a competitive advantage. So the Bretton Woods system was set up, in effect, to do two things. One was to, as you correctly put it, Adam, to constrain the ability of central banks to print money at will, which could have inflationary or hyperinflationary consequences. And second, to constrain them from being able to use currency as a tool to promote exports through devaluation of the currencies. So this worked well for a period when there was a great deal of instability in the international financial system. But then because countries' other policies, their fiscal policies, that this their deficit spending, started creating issues because now you had currencies that were not necessarily where they should have been given the policies that were being run in these countries. So you had these misalignments building up, which basically meant some countries had large trade surpluses, some countries had large trade deficits. And because of the constraint on the exchange rates, you didn't have that automatic equilibrating mechanism. And then you had this additional problem that you could not print currencies when your economy was not doing so well. 
So all of this became a little too much, especially given the shocks that were hitting the global economy at the time. So this system was really going to be very difficult to sustain over a long period. So ultimately, it met its expected or natural death, although perhaps somewhat more abruptly and surprisingly than ideal. I want to draw down a little bit further into this concept of trust, because to me, it's like the thing that really set me into taking interest in Bitcoin was the fact that I'd spent six years in Argentina, again, listening to this show. I apologize for revisiting this, but it's always a good way to frame things. Because Argentina, the place that I moved to and covered for, you know, in 2003 through 2009, was going through a problem that was created by a very similar situation, at least analogous to that which, you know, the US government faced because of the constraints of gold. Argentina had the constraints of its dollar peg and a complete misalignment between basically its monetary policy and where it was economically. It needed more pesos in the system, not less. The US was raising interest rates, and by default, Argentina was also tightening money at the worst possible time. So they broke the peg. Not that dissimilar to Nixon breaking the US peg. But more than that, to me, the most important lesson I learned from Argentina, on the one hand, I learned a lesson that this is the problem with pegged and strict, rigid monetary policy. But the other lesson I took is I watched Argentina grapple with how it would reconstitute an independent monetary policy was that it actually couldn't. It literally couldn't. There was no way that Argentina could ever recover the trust that had been lost from decades and decades and decades of mismanagement. And it got me thinking deeply about how this covenant between the government and the people is the underlying issue at stake in every question of money, and certainly fiat money. And so, Ishwar, you know, your book, The Dollar Trap, got me thinking about a lot of this as well, because you talked about the confidence that the world has in the US system, its respect for property rights, the importance of its legal system, the history of its commitment to things like free trade, and it's standing up this kind of important role as a bulwark for global open trade, right? And watching the Trump era and a very different sort of global mindset coming from the United States, and some of that sort of dictated by a different politics, but also dictated by just a very different, more challenging environment, the post-financial crisis, the widening wealth gap, all of these issues. And wondering, look, how sustainable actually is trust in the US government itself? And that whether or not this itself is brittle and dangerous, and therefore whether or not you could even say that the US government should or shouldn't be have the power to expand monetary supply, because if you've broken that trust, what are you going to do with it? How sustainable is that trust? That's a very important question you've raised, Michael, and you framed it just right. As I argued in my book, the U.S.'s economic size, very big, there is very deep and liquid financial markets. You mean lots of dollar-denominated assets. Foreign investors can come in and out easily. But what I argued really matters for the U.S. is the fact that it has a very strong institutional framework. That is an independent central bank, an institutionalized system of checks and balances, and the rule of law, which even the government is subservient to. All of these pillars of the institutional framework were eroded over the last few years. And I think many, including myself, had a legitimate concern that this could be the moment when the dollar met its comeuppance. That hasn't quite happened. Various indicators of the dollar's prominence as a reserve currency, as a payment currency, all suggest that if anything, the dollar's role has been largely preserved, while those of other second-tier currencies, such as the euro, my European friends won't be happy to hear me refer to the euro as a second-tier currency, but 
the euro, the Japanese yen, the pound sterling, and so on have taken a bit of a beating. The Chinese renminbi has become somewhat more important. And I think the reality right now is that while there is a very significant rejiggering of the relative positions of all the other currencies, the dollar by far remains dominant again because it's much easier to use. And in international finance, ultimately everything is relative. You don't have to be great. You just have to be better than anybody else. But I think cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin pose an interesting challenge, as I mentioned, because they are at some level stateless. But I do have some skepticism about Bitcoin. I suspect Adam will take me to task for this. But to me, as he correctly pointed out, Bitcoin doesn't seem to be working very well at its stated objective as a medium of exchange. So it doesn't have a lot of intrinsic value. Its major value seems to be coming from the discipline imposed by the algorithm that creates it. So scarcity by itself does not seem to me a very durable pillar of value. But certainly so far, Bitcoin does seem to have stood the test of time, but time will tell. Yeah, so it's worth jumping in here to say that it's funny that we're having this conversation and a conversation with this as the framing when Bitcoin as a technology is 12 years old. Cryptocurrency as a movement, broadly speaking, is incredibly immature compared to any type of technology you would ever expect to be having this conversation about, right? So I think that, again, there are two things that are happening here. One is that the technology introduced something legitimately new and something legitimately different from what else is out there. So to the point, in a relative world that we live in, it presents an option that is different and to many people more compelling than what we see in traditional currencies out there. So the dollar in the traditional system, as I like to call it, <laughs> the dollar you know, plays a pivotal role because it is the biggest and the most trusted relatively speaking. So correctly identifying that compared to the euro, compared to the yen, but it's a cleanest dirty shirt contest, right? It's not that it is objectively good for the task. It is that it is the best that we have available. And to look at something like Bitcoin, given this point of its development and to say that, well, this is not up to the task is really to ignore the fact of exactly what's happened over the last 10 years, both in terms of Bitcoin from a monetary policy adoption and just taking it seriously perspective, and then also to the US dollar and what's happened in terms of the incredible experimental monetary policy that we have seen deployed by the government to keep things from collapsing. And that I think is a key point that when we're talking about the monetary system, when we're talking about the financial system, there is a meaningful and well-intentioned bias towards not changing the system because we rely on the system as it stands right now and it's difficult to conceive of a system that would be able to do the things that we want to do with it without causing incredible disruption. But the reality of it is, is that incredible disruption is coming whether we want it or not. And that's been true of every global reserve currency that has happened over the last 400 years. The United States is not the first country to have a global reserve currency. It is the first country to have a global reserve currency that it disconnected from gold. Whereas before what would have happened is there would have been a natural shift of the majority of the gold that would be held by the reserve, the global reserve currency, that as that global reserve currency becomes bloated and as it becomes ineffective for the task, and as that trust that we've discussed earlier is abused, it would move to the next least dirty shirt. And so that's kind of the system that we're in right now. What Nixon did really was he put that off. They invented an entirely new system on which to make their argument for why the dollar should be the global reserve currency. And it was because of oil. It was because that became the exclusive way that you could access that. They made the partnerships and deals to make that happen. And it was very effective for a number of years. Now, it wasn't effective at keeping the value of the currency. Because they could issue as much as they want, it really took the constraints off. 
And we saw that play out in the 1980s, the early 1980s. Now, Michael, to the point you made earlier about Volcker, I didn't really understand how we calculate inflation until somewhat recently. I kind of went down a rabbit hole on this. And what I learned was that although the story is, you know, Volcker's raising the interest rates tamed inflation is the way that it's told. But what in reality happened was they changed the way that they measured inflation. And Volcker's move did have an impact, but the impact was muted and it happened over the course of about a year. And then inflation, if you were continuing to measure it the way that we measured it in the 1970s and the early 1980s before 1981, it kept going up. And so there were multiple adjustments that were made over that time. When we talk about inflation today, we consider ourselves to be in a high inflationary environment where I believe the latest reading was 5.4% from the official CPI, which is the way we calculate it. But if you're doing an apples to apples comparison, we're actually above 13% compared to the way that we measured it in the 1970s and early 1980s. And if you look at the 1970s and 1980s, the highest inflation we ever saw there on an annualized basis was 14%. So actually, we've been in that period of time. And that one distortion, I won't go down this rabbit hole too far, but that one distortion of measuring inflation in a way that is inconsistent with our history of measuring inflation has enormous impacts, notably on GDP. GDP is productivity growth minus inflation, right? So if you mismeasure and undermeasure inflation, effectively what you're doing is you're overmeasuring GDP. And if you calculate out GDP as it goes using this as kind of the method, then what you find is that there's effectively one year where GDP was not actually negative in the terms that we would have measured it from the 1970s. And that is incredible to think about because we look around and we see a world of increasing productivity where the internet has opened up the ability to communicate, the ability to do commerce in ways that was never even conceivable before. And even with that, the way that our money and the way that our government has managed these things has led to negative GDP growth in real terms when you're using correct inflation numbers. So I'll stop here. But to me, that's the context around all of this. It's that it's not about Bitcoin. It's about the world as it's developed over my entire lifetime. I've never lived in a world where we didn't have inflation systemically undermeasured relative to how we measured it in the 1970s and the 1980s. And all of the repercussions we've seen since then, I think, fall out from that. I definitely want to hear the Cornell economics professor weigh in on the allegations about mismanagement. I will just say this before I do get your responses for others. I just think inflation is inherently impossible to measure because I think it's always a moving target. Like whatever our base level of what is quality and what's not, in some respects, we've maybe undermeasured deflation because of the phenomenal undercounted value of network effects from the internet as well. Economists are constantly going back and forth about how do you actually define what your base measure is. But people like you, Ishwar, have spent decades looking at and trying to figure these things out. So I'd like to hear your response to Adam, if we can. It's a tough job measuring inflation or how much output the economy really produces. But in fact, most of the concern has been in the opposite direction, that we are overstating inflation. You may remember the Boskin Commission was set up precisely to deal with this issue. So the problem with measuring inflation and the reason why we do change the way we measure it and why we should change the way we measure it is because consumption baskets change, technologies change, so we need to be able to accurately account for the services we're getting from whatever products we consume. So if you look at a 50-inch TV that you could buy for $1,000, and now you can buy a TV for $1,100, but it's 75 inches with you know high-definition pictures, much better sound and so on, you have to make those quality adjustments. So in fact, there was a concern that inflation was overstated, And the Boskin Commission found that, in fact, inflation may have been slightly overstated, but it's a complicated issue. 
I do not believe that there is a systematic understatement of inflation. In fact, in the last few years, by all measures, we've been living in a circumstance where we're facing the opposite risk to a very considerable extent. And there are things that we monetary economists certainly don't fully understand. This was a period where, as we've been discussing, the Federal Reserve and other major central banks have been expanding their balance sheets. That is basically printing money, financing government deficits to a massive extent. And certainly if there were big price increases out there, they wouldn't stay hidden. And by all measures, prices have in fact been falling, which suggests that things are not working very well, which suggests that there are problems in the financial system. And those, I think, are the critical issues that we need to think about. But certainly I agree with Adam's point that some disruption is ahead. And I think this disruption could have some very positive benefits for businesses, consumers, governments alike. There is an irony here, though. My view, again, is that cryptocurrencies ultimately are benefiting a little bit from the imprimatur that they get from the government. I think even if you have decentralized finance, which I think is going to have legs um, becoming more important, ultimately, you still need to have mechanisms for enforcing contractual and property rights. A lot of this can be done with smart contracts on the blockchain, but ultimately, when it comes to physical possession, you still need a government that can set in place an institutional framework. So I think even if we move to a world where cryptocurrencies and blockchain-based finance dominates, and for all its virtues, I think the government will still play a pretty important role. I want to dive into that a little bit more. So I think we agree the government has the ability to shape the enabling environment in which all of these different kinds of currencies are operating, right? And the extent to which they gain traction or adoption or they're located maybe in one jurisdiction or another is going to be dependent to some extent on government policy, not exclusively, but to some extent on the government policy and regulation around those different offerings. So let's talk a little bit about, given this whole idea that erosion of trust, less trust in governments, less trust in the financial system, that we've been talking about this entire time. What do you make of kind of the CVDC, stablecoin, you know, crypto, I was going to say confab, you know, what do we make of that kind of ecosystem? Because certainly the allure to some of a CVDC is that there is a central bank that is behind it, that is, you know, engaging in more acute or targeted monetary policy, perhaps more efficiently is one of the arguments goes. Stablecoins, of course, not always pegged to fiat, but in some cases that is the case. So definitely, I would say, agree with you, Ishwar, that the imprimatur of the government is certainly present in those particular cases. In other cases, pegged to something else, maybe not quite the same way, and choices are being made about that basket or whatever it might be, what that peg might look like all the time. And then, of course, crypto, which is divorcing itself to a large extent from anything that has the imprimatur of the government, although I think, Ishwar, to the point I think you were alluding to or making, is certainly not totally separate from what the government deems is appropriate because of the nature of how all this functions. So I'm just really curious to get thoughts. Maybe we'll go to you, Ishwar, first on how you see that landscape playing out, given everything we've been talking about. There is a lot in there that you brought up, Sheila. But one thing that I think is becoming apparent is that the era of cash is certainly drawing to an end. But I think we're also coming to an era where there is going to be more direct competition between privately issued currencies and government-issued fiat currency. So in the long arc of history, we had a period where it was largely private currencies. Then you had competition with government currencies. And then with the establishment of central banks, private currencies were largely driven out of circulation. And now, and as an economist, certainly I think competition is good. We are returning to an era of competition. One thing I believe we will see is a bifurcation of the roles of money. My sense, perhaps I'm a bit of a Luddite here, is that the 
role of fiat currencies as a store of value is going to be very difficult to shake. But in their role as mediums of exchange in particular, I can well see private currencies, private digital payment systems becoming much more widely prevalent. If you think about why China is issuing a digital version of the yuan, they've pretty much been explicit about this, that they do not want retail central bank money to become irrelevant because the private payment systems run by Alipay and WeChat Pay dominate the payment systems in China. In Sweden, the Riksbank, the Swedish central bank, is experimenting with an e-kroner, not because they don't believe that the private payment systems, which are again dominating retail payments and business payments, they don't believe that they are inefficient, but they are concerned that if you don't have a role for central bank money, at a time of a crisis of confidence, you might have counterparty risk arising, that is concerns about specific payment systems that cause the entire payment system to shut down and therefore the economy to freeze. So at some level, CBDC, central bank digital currencies, are being set up as a defensive mechanism. They also have some benefits. They draw a lot of activity out of the shadows and into the tax net which is sort of what the infrastructure bill is trying to do. They make it harder to use central bank issued money for illicit purposes. So I think there are those many benefits. And I think it is an interesting irony here that what Bitcoin tried to create was a revolution where we could step away from government issued money and government issued control of the financial system. But I think the response from central banks may actually lead us into a world where now it's very difficult to conduct financial transactions without either a private financial provider or the government knowing what we are doing, even if we're just buying each other a cup of coffee. You could envision the possibility of governments, either authoritarian or well-intentioned, using smart money to determine how the money can be run to try to use money to undertake economic as well as social policy moves. So we might be moving somewhat ironically to a more dystopian world thanks to the revolution that bitcoin has started off <laughs> thanks to it adam there's a couple of things here the first is that crypto broadly speaking its big innovation is the ability to automate monetary policy you don't have to automate monetary policy you can create cryptocurrencies or specifically you can create types of tokens where you just issue them whenever you want and there's no upper limit or you can issue them such that you know the entire supply is out there so when I look at central bank digital currencies, what I see is a understanding that the technology is powerful, but a misunderstanding of what the actual value of something like Bitcoin actually is. And the value that I believe that Bitcoin actually is, is fixed, predictable monetary policy. So really what we're looking at here is the difference between technology and neutrality. Bitcoin is neutral. And I believe that over the next number of years, we will come to see much of the world really start to appreciate that neutrality, which is not something that you will find in a central bank digital currency. To the professor's point, I think that the dystopian world that we're looking at is not something that's caused by Bitcoin or cryptocurrency. I think that we would have had this irrespective because you don't need a blockchain or any sort of decentralized form of a ledger, which is really what Bitcoin introduced in order to have this sort of digital money. It already exists out there today. What this allows you to do is it allows you to create neutral networks of digital money that can span the globe. And so again, I won't speculate as to whether it's an intentional misunderstanding or an accidental misunderstanding, but I do believe that central banks have fundamentally misunderstood the reason why cryptocurrency is attractive to many people out there. And it is not because of the technology. It is entirely because of the neutrality and the power that that neutrality brings and the predictiveness 
that we can look at these systems and then project far out into the future how they're going to behave, which again is something that you just can't find out there. Okay, we have to wrap in a moment, but I actually would like to just give Ishwa a quick last word, if we don't mind, to that. Because I think, you know, interesting different perspectives here and sort of you could close it out for us would be great. So just to be clear, Adam, I don't think Bitcoin has created this move towards what I characterize as a dystopian world, but I think it has lit a fire under the seat of central bankers, causing them to react. So I think the changes that we're going to see are going to rock money, central banking, and the worlds of finance in pretty profound ways, some good, some not so good. But I think the key issue is whether there is a way to harness many of these benefits. And I think the technology really is a marvel. The more I understand it, the more I see its potential, the more that can be done to truly democratize finance. But I think the prospect of democratizing finance is going to come up against some hard realities in terms of, you know, uneven digital literacy, uneven digital access. And much like many other innovations, I think the benefits could end up accruing to a small group, perhaps bigger than certain other innovations. But there are many risks that I see as well that could play out. All right, listen, we could go on for ages here, but I think, you know, my takeaway from these things is so often like the only certainty we have is that there is going to be more uncertainty going forward. The, this is, you know, unlocking as both of you have alluded to, and Sheila, you often do, you know, this competition of ideas, essentially, right? But there's just a multiple different ways in which things could evolve here, precisely because of the technology, but also because of, I think, the global tensions that exist and date back in many respects to, you know, that historic moment 50 years ago. So thank you both for joining us in this waltz down memory lane and peering into the future at the same time. Thank you, Sheila. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Ishwar. That's all we have time for for now, folks. I'm Michael Casey. Please come back again next week for more from Money Reimagined. Bye for now. You've been listening to Coindesk's Money Reimagined. This episode featured Sheila Warren, Michael J. Casey, Professor Eshwar Prasad, and Adam B. Levine. Our theme song is Shepherd, and this episode was edited by Jonas, produced and announced by Adam B. Levine. If you have any questions or comments, you can send us an email at podcast.coindesk.com or just leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And from all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening.